Welcome to another Kuwait uh, breakfast. The subject is the, today the knowledge economy and the Gulf. And I'm delighted to have with me um, Will Hutton on my right, who barely needs an introduction, and Christopher Davidson on my left, whose academic books on the Gulf, some of you may know, but I will mention them uh, briefly. For those who don't know, um, but many of you probably do, the Kuwait program has now been running at the LSE for some <coughs> three years. Uh, it is a very intensive research program on the Gulf countries and its neighbors. We publish regularly a series of working research papers which are commissioned by the LSE on most key aspects of the Gulf economy, society, and politics. These papers are available outside, some of them, and they're available free online at the LSE Kuwait website, which contains a lot of contemporary analytical work on the Gulf economies. It's worth saying that, I think, and it's also worth mentioning that uh, 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 we're about to publish, well, actually early next year, a book called The Transformation of the Gulf, which brings together the first phase of our research on the Gulf economies and so on, and I hope we'll have the chance to present it on these occasions. Anyway, this morning it is the um, knowledge economy in the Gulf, and uh, Will will start first. Uh, there's been a bit of technological problem. We don't have a PowerPoint for some reason, but he, I hope he'll manage anyway. Uh, will is, of course, the, uh, has worked for the Work Foundation for a number of years, but is best known to us as one of the preeminent commentators on the British economy and the world economy in general, having been a commentator, first of all, with the BBC, and then, of course, uh, as editor of The Observer, and now as a regular columnist for The Observer. And, of course, he writes extensively for other papers. Will is as close as he gets as a journalist uh, to a household name, and many of his books have sold uh, remarkably over a long period of time. The ones that are best known, of course, are the state we're in, the state to come, his most recent uh, uh, Bar One book on China, the writing on the wall, China and the West in the 21st century, and his most, most recent, uh, Them and Us, Changing Britain, Why We Need a Fairer Society. Uh, he is also, I should mention, he's been asked by the Prime Minister recently to chair the Public Sector Fair Pay Review. Chris Davidson is a reader in the Middle East politics and deputy head of the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University. Um, he has a, made a very distinguished contribution to the study of the Gulf, and among his books are Dubai, The Vulnerability of Success, Abu Dhabi, Oil and Beyond, and most recently, The Persian Gulf and Pacific Asia, From Indifference to Interdependence, published by, all by Columbia University Press. And he's co-editor, uh, also very recently, of a very relevant book for this session, Higher Education in the Gulf States, Shaping Economics, Politics, and Cultures. Will will speak first, um, setting the scene, Christopher second, and then we may come back to you, yes? Yeah, will, absolutely. afterwards, and we'll hope to finish by half past eight or so and open it up to questions. As you wish. Um, good morning, everybody. I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit down because it's a... Um, what I thought I would do, I, I've, um, uh, we may yet manage to rescue it, but uh, I brought a slide deck along with me with some quite interesting uh, um, slides, but I will talk to them rather than... Um, uh, uh, probably better, actually, because uh, as Bill Gates said, um, PowerPoint is an uh, kind of obstacle to understanding. Um, first of all, a few remarks about the knowledge economy. Um, I... Um, I do take I do take the view. Sorry, the 
Okay. Um, uh, this idea has been a little while getting off the ground. I mean, uh, when um, Peter Mandelson, when he was um, Trade Secretary back in um, 97, began talking about it, there was a um, general feeling it was a, you know, a, a new labor. Uh, uh, thank you very much. That's superb. Um, it was a kind of new labor contrivance with little correspondence to reality. I think in 2010, uh, there is a growing recognition that actually the dynamic part of our economies in the West um, is knowledge-based um, goods and services. And the definition of the OECD um, supply um, includes um, in the private sector, of course, information and communication technologies, high-tech manufacturing, business services, financial services, the culture and creative industries, some parts of transport, but not all, um, and in the public sector, um, education and health. Um, in the UK, the knowledge-based economy is about two is about 45% of GDP. Um, about uh, close to two-fifths of our workforce are employed in it, um, and those figures are broadly twice what they were in 1970. It's a very similar phenomenon um, across the Western industrial economies. Um, and proof positive of this, for example, uh, is the growth of intangible investment over tangible investment. Um, investment in plant buildings and machinery um, is, you know, if you, have a, if, you, if you take an index of 100 for that in uh, 1970, investment in intangibles, that is... Um, brand equity, R&D, non-scientific R&D, organizational capital, leadership training, um, was running at, with um, at about an index level of about 40 or 50. Uh, intangibles now stand at around 130, 140. In other words, they've broadly trebled expenditure on intangibles over the last uh, 40 years uh, against the investment in tangibles. Um, and that's because uh, most manufacturing companies are transmuting from being manufacturing companies into what the Americans call manu-service companies. Um, over um, three-fifths now of um, U.S. manufacturing companies define themselves as manu-service companies. In Britain, one of the most obvious examples is Rolls-Royce, a manufacturer, of course, but the servicing of its uh, engines is um, a major, and leasing of them uh, is a major profit center in its own right. Um, and James Dyson, who is after Rolls-Royce, the um, second biggest patenter in the UK, 1,200 patents lodged last year, would also call himself a manu-service company. Um, the knowledge economy is driven by... Um, the, uh, on the one hand, the escalating pace of scientific and technological development, which grows um, exponentially and actually crosses disciplines and, fr and frontiers, and much more sophisticated demand. Um, consumers are um, willing to be early adapters of these new technologies. You can see it on your, um, I don't know who's got what app on their mobile phone this morning, but um, it's a classic example of you know, consumers and, you know, technologically-led producers co-producing a whole new array uh, of a service which, if you're in the mobile phone business, where does actually you know, producing the hard kit 
um, end and the soft um, apps begin, and the boundary is increasingly uh, is increasingly fuzzy, and much of the value added actually is in the apps rather than um, the hard kit. Um, most of you will have an iPod. Only 15% of the value of an iPod sits in the manufacturer of it. The rest of it sits in the um, kind of clever things the iPod does. Developing a knowledge economy requires a highly sophisticated um, uh, institutional uh, investment system, an investment innovation system. Um, it, it, of course, it requires um, extraordinary <coughs> centers of research, in your, not just in your universities, but in your independent research centers. It requires a capacity to transmute um, those, uh, that, that kind of knowledge and that IP, if you like, into commercially um, applicable goods and services. <coughs> it requires sophisticated regulation um, in order to um, help producers bring forward um, goods and services that necessarily the market um, doesn't know about and will be tentative about using in the first instance. And these credence goods do require actually, you know, regulatory support before consumers want to use them. That's most classic in the drugs industry. None of us would swallow a drug without the regulatory stamp that it's safe. Uh, and that, to a greater or less degree, is the story of all knowledge economy goods and services. Um, the companies that um, deliver these, these uh, operating knowledge economy are extraordinarily, extraordinarily sophisticated. Um, managing knowledge workers and these innovation processes is extremely sophisticated and difficult. Um, uh, and how um, they are banked to, uh, how they are financed, um, the skills of the people going into them, um, the interoperability of the people as they, as, as they move from um, post to post. Um, these are extraordinarily difficult things to do. It is my view um, that this is the knowledge economy is, is not just the story of our times, it's an accelerating story of our times. And I challenge the conventional wisdom, and this will be quite controversial, but I do challenge the conventional wisdom that... Um, the uh, BRIC countries are going to over, and Asia in general, are going to overwhelm the West in the, in the decades ahead. The knowledge economy is so hard to do, and the institutions required to do it, from patent law, competition law, um, procurement, um, financing, leadership, management, um, distribution systems, are so difficult to do. Uh, 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 you can't do it off the shelf. And... Uh, Western economies um, have such a leadership edge here over the rest of the world that I have no doubt that per capita incomes will grow much faster in the West in the decades ahead and that the story will be widening gap between the West and the rest and extraordinarily difficult to manage uh, uh, the expectations of countries who find it so difficult to do the knowledge economy. For the Gulf states the, um, and for uh, done some work in some of the Gulf states, to, to, this, I think, is particularly challenging because the you know, old model for development was you, know, you can use your petrodollars and you can put um, hard um, industrial infrastructure on the ground, whether it be a desalination plant or a petrochemical plant. Um, you can um, use these services to you – know, you can get branches of 
banks to demonstrate how your own Islamic bank should operate. Um, and actually, um, you can catch up to the frontier of technology without this actually being too big a challenge to the institutional structure uh, of your country. To do the large economy well, however, requires the construction of um, these innovation and investment ecosystems. And they are extraordinarily difficult to do, the relationship to, 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 to build um, a university which has got you know, its own capacity for frontier of research, um, to find ways of networking that into uh, what are necessarily undeveloped um, private sectors where there isn't a tradition of entrepreneurialism, where actually the local markets, although rich, are extraordinarily small and it's hard to get scale where there's not a tradition of investing in intangibles, um, brand equity, non-scientific R&D, the creative industries, this isn't that uh, design, advertising, you know, all that, all that cluster of activities and which have risen so strongly in every Western economy and which house the new manual service companies ex ex exist to a very scarce degree um, in the Gulf and are very difficult to um, build from um, first foundations. Uh, and then, of course, there's the human capital story, um, where um, a lot of these countries are, um, because of the extraordinary oil wealth, um, the, the young men and women do not feel that the need, actually, um, to get educated uh, in the same driven way that, for example, um, um, some Asian countries used to and still remains a kind of strong tradition in the West. And the, and the, and the, and the educational structures, the standing of teachers, the standing of educational attainment is um, very, very low. And of course, um, you can't do um, the knowledge economy, and I'll bring my remarks to an end on this note, you can't do the knowledge economy. Um, the soft institutional infrastructure which I've taught you know, relates very strongly to um, the... Uh, Governance, wider governance issues, um, uh, a, a, a press that holds um, truth to power, uh, the rule of law, um, accountability and transparency, um, some a, a tradition of argumentation because you can't arrive at some of these very sophisticated um, goods and services knowledge economy without actually the organisation that's kind of thinking about bringing them forward, itself being able to manage dissent, understand the role of argument, give and take. And it's just, it's a very, very difficult culture um, to uh, grow in um, the kinds of um, regime that exist in the, in, in the Gulf. Some great attempts have been made. I think um, you know, some of what's been happening in the UAE and Bahrain is um, courageous and very interesting and some important building blocks have been put in place. Um, some of the Gulf states are further behind the curve and they, and they do know that. Um, but of course, um, one of the difficulties is the rise of um, religious fundamentalism uh, ha is a big challenge, rather like the rise of the Tea Party movement in the States is a big challenge to the kinds of processes that you, you know, need for the knowledge economy. So there's a kind of, you know, <laughs> this is a rather precious flower. Um, incubating it and growing it, um, I think, is extraordinarily challenging. Um, 
there's, I've got a lot to say about um, what firm strategies you can adopt. I, um, I think it's quite interesting if you think about yourself as a, imagine you're running the economic development, um, you're in the economic development ministry of a Gulf state, and your challenge is to try to catch up with the frontier and develop companies that will be at the frontier of the knowledge economy. You know, what should the firm strategies be? You know, should they be local optimizers? Should they be vertical integrators? I mean, what, 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 how can you build a business franchise um, from where you stand? It's an amazingly challenging and difficult thing to do when you think of it in these terms. Thank you very much. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe that's a bit too loud. Um, I have to confess, up till a few years ago, I, didn't, I was never quite sure what knowledge economy meant. It was this these buzz, buzzwords around me, and I never got, really got a clear definition. But that all changed in summer 2007. Um, I had a very surreal job, summer job as it were. Um, had some brief leave from Durham University, and I worked for a, well, at the time, quite infamous British consultancy company because they'd just lost the home office's memory stick at the time, I think. But I had a job uh, back in Dubai where I used to live and work uh, before, and it was to help set up what was known as the Knowledge and Human Development Authority, KHDA, um, which was uh, based in a building on the periphery of the city. Well, that's quite a kind way of putting it. It was in the middle of the desert. It was a, a brand new building, so new that I remember my office chair and desk still had the cellophane wrappers on. And to inspire me every morning, I had to walk past a life-size, six-foot effigy of the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed al-Maktoum, with the slogan, education, 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 underneath, which I didn't think was entirely original. I'm sure I'd seen that somewhere else before, perhaps here in the, perhaps here in the UK. What became quickly apparent to me is that all of the consultancy companies that were working in Dubai at that time, which I think can be best described as the very, the very height of the boom in Dubai, they were all having to sing to the same tune, and that tune was being uh, made up by a document called the Dubai Strategic Plan 2015, one of these long-term uh, planning documents that was supposed to, uh, uh, supposed to carry through the vision of the, the ruler for the economy, society, political system, etc. And it became quite clear that any consultancy company that was to succeed in renewing their contracts had to somehow find a way of getting knowledge economy, which was the main headline in one part of this strategy document, into almost all of their documents too, ours included. So I remember one, one meeting we had with stakeholders where members of the consultancy team, and myself and a few others, we were going through our articles in the document, trying to insert the words knowledge economy wherever, wherever we could, um, sometimes in completely random places. So that was my first, first encounter with the term. Uh, I'm not sure I, I understand it much better today, but I'll, I'll do my best in the Gulf context anyway. What also became apparent, uh, in Dubai at least, um, was that knowledge economy, higher education, research and development, etc., were being treated by the government at that time primarily as a means to feed into the economic development of the country rather than knowledge uh, being some kind of privilege or right or tool for lifelong learning. It's very much about economic development. And I think in some ways we can forgive Dubai for that at that time, given that Dubai was one of the first parts of the Gulf to really start to move into a post-oil future, 
declining oil and gas reserves, need for very urgent diversification of the economy in order to have, have some kind of sustainable future. And up until that point, Dubai had been diversifying into trade, uh, tourism, real estate, means of getting foreign direct investment into the country, and at least this new strategic plan gave some kind of uh, future vision for, a, for an economy which would have a little bit more than that. It would have some kind of research going on, universities would somehow be central, there'd be a high technology sector, uh, etc. I think um, in some ways, though, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the centrality of uh, knowledge to the economic development of the country um, for me was, was symbolized by some of the developments that had taken place in Dubai up until that point. There was something called Knowledge Village, which any of you familiar with the region have perhaps, uh, have perhaps been to. Knowledge Village was essentially uh, a free zone park for foreign universities to set up branch campuses. And when you walked around this area, you quickly thought, well, this doesn't have the, the feeling or, or um, the atmosphere of a university campus where research is taking place. It certainly doesn't have the atmosphere of a place where any research or development that is taking place is being transferred to the local population. And my studies really, really tried to show that this, this knowledge-free zone was more about bringing foreign direct investment into Dubai um, by removing red tape for foreign companies, in this case foreign universities, British, American, Australian, etc., to come and set up branch campuses to then charge fees to students who would come not just from Dubai but around the region. And in fact, most of the students registered on these degree programs were foreign students from, from elsewhere in the Gulf, Middle East, South Asia, etc. So what we had really was some kind of educational tourism going on, students coming uh, from near and far, paying their fees, paying their education, rent, transport, etc., uh, thus feeding into, into Dubai's economy. I suppose this... Um, this emphasis on knowledge being part of the economy was also uh, evident in the universities, uh, the indigenous universities that did exist at that time too. Uh, very, little, uh, very, very little research output in the universities, no real culture of research, no measurement of research, no proper research objectives uh, in place, and certainly minimal, if any, transfer of technology and, and research to the broader uh, population. For the other Gulf states, um, it's been the same picture for the most part. Uh, knowledge, research, uh, higher education, etc., are all supposed to feed into this diversification of the economy in order to push the region beyond a post-oil future. But it's been more than that in some cases. Um, Abu Dhabi, uh, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, and to some, extent, to some extent Saudi Arabia are treating higher education in particular as a means of addressing this very serious labor nationalization problem or conundrum the Gulf is facing. As many of you in the room are perhaps aware, uh, the Gulf states have some of the most skewed demographics in the world, uh, a long-term reliance on foreign labor, both, both menial construction work, all the way up to clerical, skilled, professional expatriates too. And over the years, the Gulf states have all been experimenting with ways of nationalizing uh, their labor force, trying to get more locals, more Gulf nationals, into the workplace, both in public sector and private sector. The strategies that have been used um, have uh, not been particularly successful. They've been based on quota systems, financial incentives to try and get nationals into the workplace. 
None of these have really created uh, a very happy work environment. After all, if you have people of different nationalities in one of the, the Gulf's big cities all doing the same job or working on the same team, but you're aware that people of different nationalities are getting paid different amounts or there's some kind of quota system in place, it's not a very healthy environment. So the only real long-term solution is that of uh, increased competitiveness of the local population. Trying to get uh, local people involved in the new sectors of the economy, uh, not just manufacturing, oil and gas, etc., but trying to get nationals to the level of skills, qualifications, language abilities, etc., that can actually allow them to outcompete expatriates for jobs in the, new, in the new sectors of the economy, many of which are oriented towards um, uh, knowledge. <coughs> What we've seen, um, uh, we, we see some evidence of this. Uh, the new universities that have popped up in, uh, in Qatar, for example, many prestigious American universities are involved and also a British university very recently, a London-based university. There's been some kind of um, uh, agreement in place that these universities must try and recruit at least some uh, nationals into their student body to try and train a new generation of Gulf nationals so that by the, by the time they graduate, they can better feed into these jobs and be more competitive vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the expatriates. Um, we've also seen some, some positive developments too in these countries, again, especially in Qatar and Abu Dhabi, uh, when it comes to uh, trying to develop research objectives for the country as a whole, ways that the various uh, research institutes, universities, etc., can actually feed into national uh, development priorities, not just for the economy, but for society as a whole. We've even seen attempts to set up regulatory bodies for the research environment. Uh, Abu Dhabi uh, has enlisted both uh, Australian and American uh, advisors to help set this up, and we've seen some positive benefits so far. Qatar as well has its National Research Foundation, which has set up a very rigorous peer review system to make sure that the research that's being done firstly feeds back into Qatar somehow, and secondly is of an international standard. These are, all, these are all positive steps, and I'm confident they can become some kind of building blocks for knowledge economy and a proper research culture uh, in the future. However, it's a very challenging environment for all these developments to actually, to actually succeed in. One, um, one thing I always used to notice is that we've got this push from the top into universities, R&D, um, but the actual foundations are still very weak. Uh, primary and secondary education, uh, still, still very poor. Uh, again, there have been, uh, there have been uh, um, uh, positive developments, uh, better organizations of these, these sectors, but it's still falling uh, woefully short of the, of the uh, national objectives. I remember myself, I used to work at a university called, called uh, Zayed University in the United Arab Emirates, where there was an almost bizarre situation back in 2003, 2004, where you had students arriving at the university, and all my students were, were Emiratis from the, from the UAE, and they were expected to switch at the tertiary level from Arabic as their primary language in primary and secondary sectors to English for their tertiary education. And this, this led to no end of confusion. There were students in the class who couldn't understand a word the teachers were saying, but on the other hand, there were students who'd been educated in the private sector who were almost fluent in English and could hold a full conversation and were comparable to fluent English language uh, students here in, the, here in the UK. So it led to enormous uh, disparities in the, in the student body. 
And the universities in the Gulf are still trying to grapple with this now. We've seen a lot more English being introduced into the curriculum back in the secondary and even primary uh, schools now. Another big, um, a big challenge for, for knowledge economy and education in the Gulf <coughs> is the political eco and economic reality of a rent-based uh, economy, um, in the Gulf's case, uh, the government accruing rent from uh, oil and gas surpluses, distributing this to this... The, it, this to the population in the form of various benefits, the free housing, education, health service, etc., but also in the form of almost guaranteed public sector employment, at least up until the last few years. And this has created a system which, in my mind, has stripped away incentives, firstly, for people to actually find meaningful employment, and secondly, to actually be motivated to complete studies at higher education level. After all, if university and college are optional, why do it if you know you're going to get a public sector job that's reasonably well paid or that you have a family business that's been in existence for many years which will also be, be very well paid? So the incentives have just not really been there in the way they have in an extractive economy uh, like, uh, like, in, like in Western Europe where most of our graduates know, know full well that they have to do well, they have to finish their classes at university, graduate if they stand any chance of getting uh, good employment. Um, the other aspect to that is actually recruiting people to work in uh, higher education, schools, etc. Very difficult. Uh, these are still regarded as not particularly high-status professions, especially by, uh, by nationals in the Gulf, uh, very much dominated by, by expatriates. Uh, difficult to really um, switch people from family businesses and public sector jobs, which come with impressive titles and salaries, to work in schools and universities. I remember when I used to work in Dubai, one of the consultancy projects I was involved in was trying to look at ways to increase the number of national school teachers. And at one point we thought, well, we can't offer more money. We have to come up with something else. Should we have some kind of medal system, some kind of honor system? You're performing your national duty. Should you be guaranteed a personal audience with the ruler to congratulate you on becoming a school teacher? Either way, it was a big challenge. And I remember at one point I had all four of the male Dubai national school teachers in my office at one point discussing this. That's how serious the situation was. Not, not so bad with female school teachers, but there was a, a, real, uh, a real scarcity of male uh, role models at the time. Another big, uh, another big challenge is, um, is the patriarchal society. Um, the, the patriarchal society is still very, very difficult in, in, in some ways for female graduates to really find their, their niche. Although many females do study at university at the undergrad level, it's more difficult for them to pursue higher education overseas to get their master's or PhD degrees if their family uh, shy, away from, uh, shy away from that. Uh, also difficult for them to work in private sector employment if it could be a male-dominated uh, uh, environment, though there are certainly improvements. Just very quickly, a few other challenges. Um, constraints to civil society, uh, concerns about freedom of media, free speech, internet censorship. How can prestigious universities be setting themselves up in countries where many websites are blocked, not just websites officially blocked, such as uh, pornography or websites defamatory to Islam? but websites concerning uh, uh, political participation, concerning human rights, amnesty, etc. many of these are blocked. Uh, a few of the little problems, um, the higher education and knowledge economies in the Gulf are still plagued by prestige projects that still 
connect to the personality of the various rulers or sheikhs involved. We've seen cases of this where universities have been set up that clearly have no connection to the anthropological reality of the country they exist in. For example, Sorbonne being set up in Abu Dhabi a few years back teaching in French and finding it very difficult to recruit students, especially when English is not quite fluent, very difficult to then establish a French language university. Even New York University in Abu Dhabi uh, will have no, no minimum requirement for number of national students to enroll and doesn't seem to be teaching anything connected to the reality of the region. It's not even teaching Gulf studies in any, in any shape. Finally, there's a concern about uh, regional relations and international politics, relations with Israel, Iran, etc. Can, can students of Israeli or Iranian origin either work or study at these universities? These are big questions ahead. Um, in conclusion, um, I don't want to sound too bearish. There are certainly, certainly many positive developments here. The Gulf states, after all, can devote quite a chunk of their GDP to education and knowledge economy at the moment in a way the West cannot. Um, these obstacles, for the most part, can, can be overcome, I think. Um, there's certainly uh, an opportunity here for the United Kingdom. Uh, UK universities can, can move in, can, uh, can try and serve as some kind of blueprint, both for the wider uh, education sector, knowledge economy, and perhaps, perhaps even civil society. Um, I think I'll, I'll finish there. Thanks, David.